Welcome to the Tiny Plastic People podcast, the podcast about tiny plastic people. We paint them, we play with them, and we want to tell you why we think that's great. This is the podcast of tinyplasticpeople.com. I'm Drew, and joining me, Tom G. Hello. I will be your legally mandated Tom for this episode. Uh, JD. Hey up, how's it going? And Alistair. Hello. So before we get into the of main topics we've got quite a lot to talk about tonight um how models can kind of really bring you into a game um mechanics and sort of diverse mechanics that maybe are a bit different to what you normally see and and also maybe the mechanics that you see a bit too much and then finally how to sort of introduce people to the hobby but before that maybe we just have a quick round the table and see uh, what people have been doing playing games and getting any hobby done recently Alistair, do you want to start us off? Have you been up to much? Sure. Um, well, still no games, sadly enough. Um, though I did try out Tabletop Simulator the other day, so again. Um, seems, I mean, it is pretty good, and I know that a lot of people have been playing on it, but uh, it's not really how I want to get my gaming, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, on the painting side, I continue to paint some Tau. Um, in a personally challenging yellow, but um, that seems to be working out pretty well. And I've recently been um, 3D printing a bunch of tanks in 8mm scale. Um, so that's the, like the Adeptus Titanicus scale. You know that. Ah, yes. Now I've seen your photos of them. I was quite uh, envious. Uh, very nice. So... Tom, what have you been up to? Well, the first um, hobby update I've got is I'm devastated to say that no one's been in touch with me to sell me Richard's Admech Army after the previous episode. So I can't report any progress on that. Um, and even more disappointingly, I've only managed to paint one model since I was last on the podcast. And it's only it's only a, a very small um, Knight Castellan. Um, <laughs> probably, probably the largest <laughs> model I've... And, mo- and most complex model I've... Um, ever painted um there, there, there should be pictures of it on the time plastic people website by the time you um hear this episode because we're doing a hobby roundup i believe um but it's an elaborate conversion i have built a command center onto the back of the of the night knight's castellan um they've got a little hollow table there um and th- this is quite a large model in general i've added um about a third extra height to it so that was a i was about to say a fun little project but it is not a little project it's taken me the best part of a month to get this thing finished but it's finally done yes because it's quite a big model even before uh additions isn't it it's uh it's no small project on its own and uh yeah your embellishments are, are quite serious mm. excellent uh jd have you been busy with anything uh yeah i've done a few things um so i've been doing the death core of Krieg from the uh, Kill Team Octarius box, uh, which are great little models. Love them. Uh, I've stalled a little bit now because I've entered my most hated phase of painting, which is base cutting lead belcher. Absolutely detest it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've also been doing some little bits of uh, Tau because I decided to start a Tau uh, Crusade army for 40k. And that's been a lot of fun trying to come up with like a sort of dark blue colour scheme for them. Um Again, stalled on that little bit because I decided to paint the Death Corps instead. And yeah, just uh, doing little bits of Stormcast and things. And I'm also one of the people that has fallen prey to um, Team Yankee. 
uh, little tiny tanks. So uh, that I've, yeah, uh, yes, yeah. Assembled some little uh, Iranian tanks. Our quality. Is Iranian <laughs> Soviet style armor then? Uh, it's it's a mix in Team Yankee. They've got um, Soviet equipment and old British and American stuff from before the revolution. So my tanks are little uh, British chieftains. Uh, then I might get some uh, Soviet aircraft later on. Just little bits like that. But, um, yeah, that's been nice. I, I always imagine that um, the those tank models are quite quick to paint, are they? Compared to your... I've not actually uh, painted them yet. <laughs> uh, I've assembled them and then um, I ended up painting the Kill Team stuff and the Tau stuff. Um, I think Team Yankee has become a bit like... Uh, it's a little bit like my Raven Guard uh, heresy project where it's going to be a long-term thing that I do when I, f- I do bits of when I feel like it, um, but I'm not rushing to get it finished. Yeah, something, something sort of just break monotony from pre- other projects, perhaps. Exactly, yeah. Nice little palette cleanser. Yeah, sounds sounds good. It's nice to have a bit of variation, isn't it, uh, in things. And myself, um, well, there was an entire podcast about it, and I, I've been painting and playing Horus Heresy, so... Uh, anyone's particularly interested in that then they can go and listen to our last episode which was an entire sort of first look at horus heresy from a couple of us so uh yeah you should listen to it because it's a very good episode thank you moving into the uh the main course then of today's discussion tom do you want to let us know what you've brought to the table of course um so i wanted to sort of just hear from you guys whether you'd ever felt um, or seen a model which made you go, I understand this now. So, part of the appeal of the hobby of tabletop wargaming is being able to evoke a setting with the models you see on the table. You sort of, it's a static piece of plastic, but with with the poses, with the decorations, with the paint jobs, it can really a, a good model can really put you into the feel of the game, of the setting, and in particular with the Games Workshop universes, they are quite elaborate settings. And I was thinking about this recently, and um, so Games Workshop is particularly good at this, at showing off their unique concepts, their settings with their models. But some of them really stand out for that. Um, And my example here is I'm a long-term gamer. I've been in and out of the hobby for probably the best part of 20 years. And I will freely admit that when Age of Sigmar first came out, I did not get it. I did not get the appeal. I did not get why I'd want to do this, because it felt like quite generic fantasy to me and had lost what made the old world appealing to me. So I was like, okay, that's not for me. But then, um, a couple of years after it came out, I think it was, they released the Eidolon, the Eidolon of Maflan in the um, Eidolon F. Deepkin range. And for those who aren't familiar with it, that's the, um, the essentially the, the avatar of the, I suppose, elven god almost, and riding on a large wave of water. It's really over the top. It's a massive centerpiece model. And I saw that and thought, wow. That is something that could not exist in any other setting, in any other system almost. It is very high fantasy, very elaborate, 
and a very unique take on things. And I sort of looked at that model and I thought, I understand what Age of Sigmar allows them to do now. That it's high fantasy, that it's it's able to do this over-the-top stuff. We'd, we'd joked about fish elves in fantasy, but this was not a fish elf. This was, this was Age of Sigmar fish elves. Um, and since that point, I was like, right, now I now get, I now understand what Age of Sigmar is trying to do. And it sold me on it. It really did. And I'm not likely to, I'm not sure I'm ever going to get one of those models myself. But it made me understand this, the high mythic fantasy that he's going for. And I was like, right, okay, I'm now on board. And I think that's a really good experience. I just wanted to hear it, see if any of you had had similar. So for me, back in the day, when I very first got into like um, Warhammer, it was during the days of the heady days of Warhammer Fantasy Battle, and for me, it was it was the Empire Steam Tank. Like that's that was the thing that I saw that was like, oh, what is this thing? What is this like setting? Um, and then off the back of that, I ended up getting. I think it was I don't know if it was the fifth edition, the Fantasy Battle Starter Set, the one that had um, the Empire and Greenskins in it. Um, and yeah, off the back of that, just ended up having an Empire collection mm. of those, and it was, it was one of those things that just fully grabbed me, like because I hadn't seen anything like it before at the age of, I think it must have been about ten. Um, but yeah, that Empire Steam Tank, and the fact that you can still get the Empire Steam Tank is so good, and I'm still always kind of tempted by one as the the model that like introduced me to this incredible setting and world. That would have been the um, classic metal Steam Tank, wouldn't it? If- was fifth edition Warhammer? Yes, yeah, yeah. I on its square on its square base. <laughs> I yeah, that's a really good pick. I think because I I fondly recall still the article, some of the articles in White Dwarf about the steam tanks and all the conversions when they did a a more updated. I think still metal steam tank. I think they there was a there were two iterations of the metal steam tank before. I think is it a plastic model now? I don't know, but it's a classic profile, a classic shape and yeah i i really rate that model as well so i've been trying to think uh of things and models i'm not sure if there's ever been a model that's brought me into a specific game um because i've sort of like part sort of seeped into games through um other people around me playing them um but two things that do come to mind is uh recently i painted the um the Ossiarch Bone Reapers warband for Underworlds. Um, and before I'd done that, like, I didn't really get the, like, Ossiarch aesthetic. Um, I think that perhaps I just don't like the Games Workshop color scheme for them, but um, when I actually had the models in my hands and I like, was painting them, I was like, oh, these guys are actually pretty cool, weird little bone golem chaps who are all extremely pleased, apparently, just to, like, yeah, like, sometimes just having a model and like actually looking at yourself um, can like because it's often difficult to just see through someone else's paint scheme or if a paint scheme doesn't quite do the model full justice sometimes you have to do it yourself and I find that um, Underworlds is really good for that because you get to paint a whole bunch of different models from different factions of aesthetic and yeah weird little gribble men's of different I do think that the Ossiak Bone Reapers in particular um, do suffer for that because I, well, personally, yeah, I do find the the box art, the Mortis Praetorian scheme, to be very uninspiring. 
compared to when you actually look in their battle tome and it's got, you know, the ways to do, say, the Staliac Lords or the Petrifex Elite or the Crematorians. And they're so much better, in my opinion, than the, uh, the the box art one. That it's, yeah, I think it really unlocks the potential of that range because it is a really cool range. Like, even the Mortec Guard are really cool models. But, like, yeah, I think it's just that, that paint scheme, I think, can be quite off-putting. In my, well, again, caveat, in my opinion. <laughs> Yeah, there's something about getting a model in your hands and looking and going, going. Oh, that's how you paint. That's what I can do with this. And um, they sort of, I suppose, the doors of imagination open to what can I do with this. And some models are much more open to that than others. So I think that um, I think one of the great success of the Ossiarch range actually is that they do have ones which are not just basic bone as part of the basic armies they suggest, because your classic undead, when it's a skeleton army, it's quite difficult to think of anything to paint them other than bone white. Um, but the Ossiarchs, I feel, they have encouraged other things. And and I was also thinking when you were talking there about how um, there's a lot of models now with sculpted banners on, and you think, oh, there's only one way to paint that. But then you look and think, actually, what can I do with this? Um, on, on, our, on the Discord we've got, I think there's a load of people who have painted the Stormcast from Dominion, and in particular the banner bearer. And in so many different ways and quite inspiring different takes on it. So I've got mine sitting around here somewhere. I need to come up with my own elaborate take on it to see how I can compare to everyone else. I'm still struggling to think of anything. I think maybe like Alistair, that it's like when you sort of gradually lowered into the hobby waters, you, you don't notice things quite so much. Yeah, it is an odd one. I, I feel, talking about Age of Sigma, I feel like they... Maybe it's not so much that it's the thing that captures it. Oh no, because it does capture it. There's, there's the uh, the Warcry warbands are like the first normal people of the realms, as it were, um, and you kind of feel like there's this sort of ball of chain that uh, Age of Sigma carry around, which is all the Empire medals still that you have all these cities in weird like flaming realms and realms of perpetual darkness, and it's still hands. Bratwurst with his big handlebar moustache and sort of Landshek pantaloons as the kind of the, the default human model. And it would be nice to see more of that, you know, more of what the realms could actually be fashion wise, because certainly the Black Library books or touch on it quite a lot. And yes, yeah, so, so those Warcry bands are actually quite a good way of showing what civil, you know, they are obviously weirdos, but they have come from some human civilization, um, particularly the, is it Cypher Lords? are these sort of duplicitous ones who are living amongst a society you know they look a certain way they aren't they haven't peeled their faces off yet um you know they 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 could be something far more normal so i think they are quite interesting i suppose for 40k certainly maybe you know it's, it's slightly taking your question a different way but as a model that sums up 40k for me it just has to be all the inquisitor stuff because they are so weirdly gothic and sort of creepy odd fantasy you know it isn't a clean science fiction it isn't a you know i think it gets lost sometimes in some of the ranges that there is this kind of weird unheimlich look to 40k and i think the inquisitors perfectly capture that because at the end of the day they are just normal humans but they're so gribbly with it yeah there are definitely some models which really scream 40k um, and others which are sort of could be a bit more generic sci-fi. Um, 
I, I'm thinking back. I remember a, a White Dwarf decades ago, probably where they'd just released the, a new Imperial Guard codex, and they said that one of the one of their goals with that codex was to put the weird back into the Imperial Guard, um, because they're like, well, this, these just humans. Well, how can we make this actually 40k? Is that the Vestoyan first release then? Because they were certainly not real world in there. No, I, I think this was um, just in the rules. So they, I think this must have been back in third edition 40k um, when they released mm-hmm. the new Cadian, the the still current Cadian plastics. When they were first released, the codex they came out with was started having lots of psychers and other weird stuff. Um, so relics and um, sort of holy banners put into it, which mm-hmm. they sort of lost through the course of second edition, apparently. So th- those models are still going strong. Well, for the most part, they've got new heads now. Good. Yes. Yeah, no, it is uh, slightly, slightly re-evented. It's the uh, 20 years of, of good service in the Imperial Guard. So. <laughs> if I were to put my, like, point my finger at one, <clears throat> one range that I think fully sold 40k to me, I mean, I was already into 40k at the time because I'd read the Gaunt's Ghosts books and I'd started an Imperial Guard army and stuff. But the one that fu- the range that fully, fully sold me on 40k was when they did the Metal Sisters of Battle. Um, and I think even now as well, with the new, even with the new the new Sisters of Battle range, I, I think that is the faction I can point out and go, that is 40k. That is, no faction more than the Sisters of Battle embodies the vibe of 40k. Like all the super baroque mm-hmm. tanks and the uh, you know the, the arco flagellants and the sisters repentia and all that kind of stuff like uh, yeah just nothing can evoke that setting more for me than those guys yeah I think that's actually the inquisitor models were the, it was all the witch hunter ones which was the same third edition codex as the sisters of battle or a lot of the sisters of battle stuff came out for and yeah you're you're right it's a very similar kind of baroque strangeness aesthetic where you know you, you are a, a man going to war but you've, you're also part of a candlestick or something or yeah like you say these sort of archiflagellants who are just weird freaks yeah and, and these things are i think really important for a game to have because it means that when someone says oh so why do, why do you play um 40k rather than some other sci-fi game you can say well i play it because of the aesthetics say of the sister battle of of this particular take on the grim dark um same same with warhammer i would now play age of sigmar because i want that epic mythic fantasy feel um it's a very unique thing and so i don't go to other systems which are out there so much because they're not offering that same feel as um age of sigmar has um, which is also actually quite represented by um, another model, which I had a sort of I understand this now moment for me, which is the the living spells they released in um, Age of Sigma Second Edition. Um, I remember there was a the first one they previewed. I think was the the uh, I think it's Nashrak's jaws or something. The, the giant chompy teeth moving across the battlefield, and they previewed that. And I sort of looked at it and go, okay, this is a game where you can have a giant set of teeth chomping their way across the board. That tells me a lot about this game. And it tells me I'm, I'm 
I'm here for this. I, I want to play this game now. Yes, I think there's certainly quite a lot that Age of Sigma does now that is very good for sort of capturing the sort of invocative setting, isn't there? It's, uh, which is hard because it's, it's such an extra world, but then at the end of the day you're playing it on a sort of a flat six by four table, whereas you know the actual realms themselves could be floating islands or you know seas of I don't know <laughs> solid darkness. And I'm trying to think what's in the sort of Black Library books and things you know as, as described, which is you know it's a it's a very demanding terrain uh, if you actually wanted to to fight it. I mean, Forty K always has the same, which is like. I can't remember what I described it as in the past, where it's 40k is this sort of big space universe, but every base and every battlefield people tend to come up with looks like a kind of run-down industrial estate outside of Norwich or something. And uh, it's quite hard to kind of bring the the weirdness of these worlds kind of out on purely on the battlefield. Yeah, though I think the sort of various bits of terrain that get put out now help a lot with that. that although, okay, they are quite industrial but some of the stuff that's been put out particularly the faction specific terrains i think really start to evoke a very unique feel i'm thinking particularly of like the the lumineff have their floating shrine that's a very that's starting to get a little bit of a way to evoking that setting through the terrain as well which is really nice what i was thinking of talking about tonight then was um i've been looking at quite a lot of different game systems recently and there's some interesting elements of that and i know that we're not specifically a sort of gw website and podcast but we we do tend to skew towards the sort of the gw ecosystem um but looking at these other games there's a lot of stuff that's that's very diverse and very sort of different mechanically um which has been sort of very interesting, and, and certainly even some games I've picked up just to see how certain mechanics work. So I don't sort of specifically want to talk about the games I've been looking at, but more in general, what do people find as sort of a really good mechanic in a game? And then also, are there any mechanics that you can kind of feel that are either overused or there's a particular favourite game of yours that you'd like to see one particular mechanic taken out of i've got a few suggestions um i'll start off by saying that i think this is a really interesting conversation because i think that in any game the every assumption made in it needs to be thought about how complex is this is it actually adding value to the game i think i feel that that's one of the things that the latest games workshop games actually are quite good at of thinking is this a valuable thing for this game to have um is it actually making it fun that's why you had quite a bit of, bit of simplification in both age of sigma and more recent editions of 40k i felt because it's like actually is this worth having so with that um sort of perspective in mind the the mechanic i would add would be to try and find a way to um change when damage happens so this is based on apocalypse um the most recent version of that where you have damage taking place and dealt to models at the end of a turn. Um, and what that and I really like that because it means you actually get to play with your models. It's there's nothing worse than having your um big important knight castle that just spent you spent almost thirty hours painting over the last month um on the board and taking off the board on the first turn. 
that's not a great experience to be honest um no so and almost guaranteed as well isn't it it's the you know you you put a lot of effort into your centerpiece model but you're also drawing a target on it so and it's part of the game absolutely um but there are other ways of doing it there are other games which have gone okay you know to some extent wherever you've succeeded at removing so you can't you can't be sure and so the way apocalypse does this is um you put blast counters onto units and you roll their saves at the end of turn so if you've put a lot of blast counters on my on my knight's castellan you can be fairly sure that it's probably going to die you can't be sure and for me that's a really good mechanic to add into games because it also allows for uncertainty and um you know heroic class stands i don't know how many force i need to commit to this part of the board and a bit of pushing your luck do you put lots of damage across lots of different units or do you focus fire on one thing to make sure it's dead so mechanics like that i i don't know if any of you guys have found come up across other things which have that same effect of making it so that you can ultimately so you can use your models for longer it's interesting because um i mean in some ways this is only a reflection of uh, most games workshops games because they are army scale games um a few even their skirmishes are like this for a bit but um things die very quickly and are taken off the board so like um the one game that I know they have that doesn't do this is Titanicus, and there the lethality is paired way back. So Titans will stick unless you really pour your entire sort of like army into one job. You're very unlikely to kill a rob one of your opponent's big robots if like on first turn, um, um, which makes it sort of feel like everything lasts longer and you've got more choices to make. Yes, as another sort of Satanicus fan, I certainly agree that you you're getting a similar feel, but through a different route, aren't you? That you're sort of seeing more of your your models sort of do stuff. I think you get a bit in the new kill team game as well, actually, where you and and Warcry, of course, where models have many more wounds in general, so mm. the chances of taking something down immediately. Um, are much lower um and i i sort of understand that because the part because the reason of course for this mechanic to work the way it does in um in 40k and age of sigma is is for um because it, so you don't need to track things so you don't you can go right that model is either there or it's not and that has got advantages but but i i would like to see experimentation with if i've painted these models i want to play with them yes yeah there's there's certainly I mean, it's always a problem that all sort of war games are going to have with how how lethal they are, I suppose, balanced to yeah, showing off your toys versus your toy being actually a sort of dangerous monstrosity that, you know, maybe, maybe the way to uh, to solve it is just to paint one goblin really nicely and it's the last goblin in the back row and of your sort of 100 goblin block and, and he's going to be there the entire game. But uh... Uh, I, I will fully cop to being... Uh, a games workshop baby um like team yankee is the first game that i've got into that is not produced or made or whatever by games workshop um but i genuinely do love age of sigmar's um 
priority system where you, you can get the double turn. I, I genuinely think it's just masterful. I just absolutely love it. You, um, I like the, the idea that you don't really have that much control over it, but it's it's then down to you to play in a way that if you if you've got the potential to get the double turn, you want to take advantage of it, but you have to be a little bit conservative as well in case you don't get it, and that that priority role can change the the outcome of the game entirely. And it's just something that I just I don't know, just really really love it. Just can't get over how good it is because uh, I mean I've I've been on the receiving end of it going not my way. And I've also had it go my way, and it's uh, yeah, it can be quite game changing, especially around you know battle round three or four. The the entire thing can be decided by who gets the priority. Um, and I think as well, has anyone else here played New Kill Team? No, no. Um, I've yeah, I'm going to talk about it in a bit, and I'm and also don't want to go too in depth on it in case because there might be a kill team special in the works maybe um but um the way that that works so that at the start of a turn you assign orders to everybody in your kill team so you give them either engage orders or conceal orders um and a conceal order basically means that um your opponent if they're if they're behind cover or if they're um not quite visible it basically means they can't be targeted but it means that they can't shoot. Whereas if they have an engage order, they're more vulnerable, but they can actually go and do stuff. And trying to strike that balance in a game that lasts for, you know, maybe three or four turns is, yeah, just, it's it's very interesting. And there's some ways around it. Some kill teams get access to equipment that lets them change someone's order when they're activated, which seems like it'd be quite powerful. But yeah, I'd love to see more games, more skirmish games, have that as a mechanic of having to, of sort of making that decision at the top of a turn. You know, what's what's everybody going to be doing, and then tr- just having to deal mm. with that if the situation changes. Like, there's been a few times where I've had someone concealed in kill team, where the situation on the board has then changed so drastically that I really find myself going, wish they wish they could shoot, <laughs> but they can't. But yeah, just things like that. Just little those little quirks of of the system. I just like to see more stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, order, orders mechanics are really interesting. Actually, the, the apocalypse also has um, orders where you can you give each of your um, your com- your commanders a order to either I think it's advance or aimed fire, and there's a standard movement. So, and that affects what what, what they can do moving and, sh- and fighting wise so if you've given them an advance order they can they get to move double their distance and fight in close combat but they don't get to shoot if they you give them a aimed fire order they can get a bonus to their shooting but they can't move um and that's as you say it's quite nice having to think right what do i want this thing to be doing um this this turn and both those game systems, I think, and both the order systems um, hinge on it being a alternating activation system, I think, which I think is, that that was going to be my, my other choice, actually, for a mechanic to add into the main um, 40k and Age of Sigma. I love alternating activations. I think that it's a good way forward for, for a lot of games. There are, as ever, complications with it, and there is a advantage to having a I-go-you-go system like in 
um, 40k Age of Sigmar, and there is a lot of innovation, as you're saying, about the double turn. That's a really interesting take on it. Um, but just seeing what you can do by changing up the the turn system and and having those orders and going, okay, what what do we do if um, you can you can you teach take turns in what you do rather than doing everything at once is really a really interesting place to play with, I think. Yes, I think I'd agree. I mean, I I'm not a fan of the whole. I you know I do my all my turn and then then you do all your turn. I mean, it's convenient for going to get cups of tea. That's probably my only sort of positive for it. You know, and this is having played Games Workshop games since the you know early nineties, and they've always been like that, except for uh, like we have nowadays, where it's like Titanicus and uh, Necromunda and things. Which do have the sort of the alternating activations. So yeah, I, I'm definitely a big fan of alternating activations. Um, maybe they don't stand out as special enough to say it's my sort of you know top ten mechanics. But uh, yeah, I, I do. It would be interesting to see it in the GW ecosystem, although it's pretty common outside of the GW kind of sphere. Yeah, I think GW is actually really unusual. Um with their main games not using alternating activations. Um, me and a friend have experimented with using alternating activations of various approaches in 40k itself, and it works all right. You can um, hack it into um, into working. Um, but there are actually quite a lot of, of different considerations to make in terms of how you do it, because which do you activate each phase, or do you t- move an entire unit and do all of its movement, shooting, fighting at once um, as a single action. There's quite a lot of different ways you can take even the concept of alternating activations. And the, I mean, obviously the entire game would need writing, rewriting from the ground up to, um, to support it. But it's an interesting way to have a go at playing it once in a while. Um, or just play Apocalypse because that's all alternating activations all day and it's great. Alistair, have you thought of anything you really like? or Yeah, don't? so there's a thing that I really do like um, in games, uh, which is hidden information. Um, so, mm-hmm. I mean, an example of this is... Um, well, it, anything in the game where like you have made a decision ahead of time and uh, your opponent has the option to know what you've decided to do, but doesn't necessarily know exactly because this opens up all sorts of like you know bluffing and pushing your luck and outguessing and outplaying your opponent um and like that sort of stuff isn't available unless you have that um this so there's a, there are awesome caveats to it so you can't just have just complete hidden information um so Malifaux is a game that I play, um, and it's one of the ways in which you score points are to pick two schemes at the beginning of the game, and they're from a mm-hmm. generated pool of... There's a total of 13 schemes in any one uh, sort of competitive pack, and then you generate five of them for a game. So those five of the five you can choose from, and you have to pick two. So you know what your opponent kind of picked from as well, um, and you know this before you even build your list. So you can mm-hmm. place, you can build things that can play towards certain schemes very well, um, and you can pick things. Uh, you can, you know that if your opponent might be trying to do something, you can counterplay them. 
Um, and of course, this requires you to be playing a game in which there is the potential for counterplay. Um, so this is better for skirmish scale things, definitely. Almost is what you're suggesting, actually, there is it's something I do really like, is asymmetry in games and asymmetry in your objectives. And I think that's what you're kind of your hidden information is giving you in Malifaux by the sounds of it, that you aren't both necessarily working to the, you know, if you've got a, a classic battle plan of you control, if you control the centre, you get five victory points at the end of every turn. You know, this is a very, both people are trying to do this. Whereas, yeah, it sounds like Malifaux, you've got a lot more room to be doing different things and, you know, your, your objectives aren't necessarily the same as the opponents and things. That exact um, is that that exact case is one of the schemes is like hold the center. So now, mm-hmm. if you know that it's that your opponent might potentially be wanting to hold the center, you're motivated to go fight for the center, but you don't have to necessarily pick that scheme because it might be hard to do if your opponent is also going to come fight you. Um, on the other hand, both of you might bluff that you're not doing it and just stay away and try to get there late in the turn. It's fun. Yeah. Yeah, no, it does sound sort of very interesting. Uh, Malifaux is one of those games that I've I've seen the models of and then I have absolutely zero knowledge uh, about it at all. Um, and this is, you know, maybe again, sort of being a bit too close to sort of GW's products that you do start to become blind you know if nothing else is only x many hours in the day so what else are you looking at but i think now on that stuff hidden information um chain of command which is uh, a world war ii game by two fat lardies which is one of the games that i've recently picked up and I, I didn't pick it up for the hidden information side of things i picked it up for the deployment side of things but it does deal with support as a hidden information setup so your army list is fixed depending on what you take so if you take a you know british rifle squad you have a fixed number of 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 squads with fixed loadouts because that's how the army works you know they don't let you choose things but what you can choose for your force is how much support you get so it's things that are attached to you by hq which you might want to take on that mission and you only decide your support choices after you know what your mission is so, you know, you are planning for do that. And some of your support choices are like anti-aircraft guns. They don't appear on the table, but they give you defense against enemy air attack, which again is just a sort of, it's a pre-game barrage effectively. But your opponent might not take any airstrikes. And you can you can take anti-tank guns and your opponent might not take any armor. So you're very much having to build a list on the fly with what you expect the opponent might do based on the you know the sort of scenario that you're expecting to be fighting and i think that again is interesting um and like you say it is that sort of early stage of of hidden information that does it starts the game before the game begins i suppose or certainly before the models hit the table yeah the other game which i can think of that uh well that of um, Games Workshop that does this to a small extent is Underworlds. Um, because when you first start playing your opponent in a sort of tournament setup, you have no idea what's in their deck. So you don't know what they're mm-hmm. going to do, and you don't know what they're capable of doing, and you don't know how they're trying to score their points. And there's 
to be sure, there's at sort of Underworlds tournament level, there are certain like very reliable things that you can do just because of the nature of it as a it's designed as a card game, um, so you can expect to see certain sort of powerful cards come up all the time. But I always enjoy that initial step of like, what has my opponent taken? Can I outthink what he might do and beat him before he does it? Yes, I suppose anything linked to decks is always going to have that. And I, I've heard Underworld described as being because it's is it best of three yeah. Underworlds, so you sort of start to. You, you almost have like a scouting game initially and then you've seen, I don't know how much of the deck you're likely to have seen, but whatever sort of percentage of the, the cards that will have come out in the first game. So in the later two games, you've got a much better idea of, of what you're up against. That's exactly why I love it. I've played, I think, one and a half games, so I certainly can't claim any experience beyond I know it exists and I have rolled some dice, but uh, yeah. As soon as like, I've touched on Chain of Command, I, I will say... The thing that drew me to it, actually, because as a period, I'm not particularly interested in real-world stuff or in historicals, certainly modern-day or near-modern-day historicals. But the way deployment works in um, Chain of Command is incredibly interesting, to me anyway. And what you do is you effectively play uh, an entire mini-game at the start of the game, and you... Rather than deploying your army, what you deploy is four counters. And these counters have to stay within 12 inches of each other. And you then take it in turns to move your counters around the table. And these represent your your patrols going out and exploring the land, the sort of the battlefield. And if they ever get within 12 inches of another opposing patrol marker then they can't move any further because they've made contact with the enemy so you have this enemy and play you know positive players pushing back and forth with these patrols trying to get into advantageous positions because the way deployment then works is that you deploy behind your patrol markers uh restricted by the nearness of the opponent's ones so in sort of very simple terms once your patrol markers are all locked down, you then have to put deployment points in. And these are spawn points for your army. So you don't actually deploy your army to begin with. What you deploy are these spawn points. And that's effectively the as far as the enemy's patrols can see. So six inches back from a patrol marker, you put a deployment point. So although you may all start you know, in a very you know, classic war game sense, a line of markers down one side of the table, a line of markers opposite them... In this patrol phase, you might actually wheel entirely round into two kind of curves facing each other, or you've driven forward because you know there's land you need to com- capture here and things. And it makes it this entire strategy before the game's begun of how you want to deploy things. And it means that then when the game begins, there are these fixed points that you can deploy from, and you don't have to bring your units out immediately. What instead you do is when the units get to activate then you may choose which deployment point to bring them out on so it's 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 really different and it was so fresh to see you know that this way of dealing with deployment that just isn't like anything else i'd seen for such a long time uh it really struck me as a kind of a thing that was you know a great selling point for this game but would also be you know, so good in so many other games, James Workshop games particularly, you know, if you've got Necromunda or something, you have got these 
kind of twisting underhive tunnels where it's really claustrophobic. But as soon as a game starts, in a lot of senses, you you know exactly where the opponent is. You know, oh, his chieftain's over there, his you know champions there, and his three juves are there with this kind of weird radar that you have that can see through all the walls. You know, you're, you're like Superman, you've got x-ray vision and you just laser focused into where everyone is. And uh, the idea of this sort of dynamic deployment and dynamic patrol phase in a game like Necromunda would be would be really interesting to me. Yeah, it's making me remember um, Space Hulk with its blip markers. If, if we feel we've got time for another um, mechanic to talk about, I've got another one to add to, add to the mix. Yes. Oh, yes. Uh, this is this is one of the ones to um remove from a system. Um and might be a bit of a spicy take. The mechanic I would see removed from um Games Workshop games from 40k and Age of Sigmar is points. Um I think that um replace points at I I should clarify that I don't, I don't mean remove balancing mechanics. But mm-hmm. the the idea of points as being the only balanced mechanic is what I would remove. So, because I was thinking about this, that um, I think in the previous episode we talked about how in competitive forty k, um, you don't people don't take special weapons in their squads because the points are better spent on on more troops, more more bodies, and right. what's Weird to me with points is having this one arbiter of both um, how good your your personnel are and how good their weapons are. And whereas what you've got with other systems like Kill Team, the latest Kill Team, you get your you have one um, resource which you essentially use to buy your team. You you have say um, three you know, two blocks of um, operatives to put into your kill team and then you have a separate list of points to buy your war gear with and that's the sort of mechanic i would want to see in main age of sigma and 40k so essentially use a power level to select your units but then you equip the units with special weapons and with war extra war gear using a pool of points because they're different things what it's sort of it makes no sense to me that I need to weigh up whether I buy a plasma pistol for a sergeant on the same scale as as having to decide to buy a new space marine for a unit. And it feels like something that's a very long, stuck-in-the-system um, assumption that you'll always use points. And actually, if you broke, broke it down a bit into one set of mechanics for how you s- select your units and another for your war gear. It, I think it would probably be easier to balance as well because you mm-hmm. know that you're, 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 having, you're able to compare your units to... You, when you're saying a space beam costs 15 points or whatever, you're, you're currently comparing that to that 15 points could also buy you, um, you a large heavy weapon. It could buy you a load of smaller weapons. There's a whole load of different things it could buy you. Whereas if you're just comparing it to a guardsman, um, I should specify, I'm very certain space means do not cost 15 points. I'm aware of that. Don't write in. Um, but just having it on different scales. Um, and to some extent, we're starting to get this with um, with command points. You can use those for pre-game upgrades. You can use those by extra relics, for example. Um, but I would probably want to see the two things entirely separated and go, right, I have one set of 
points or power level, whatever you want to call it, to buy my units with, and then I equip them from another pool. So you have that variety. So that's my mm. hot hot take. I want to ask Alistair a thing which relates to this, because GW Titanicus does have rules for not fixed points. And on paper, it sounds like it should make a big difference. Which in Titanicus, you set a game size, and then you build up to that point if you want to. And if you go under points, it gives you an advantage. But I've never seen it have a big effect, and people tend to always go to very close to the points. So as a sort of someone I've not actually played in person, I don't know if Alistair, as the other AT player, has seen this ever kind of become a strong part of the game. Yeah, I haven't played enough games, unfortunately, because I got into it just at the start of lockdown, so I've played all of about four uh, games of Titanicus, <laughs> unfortunately. timed then. Right. Yes. Um, I will say, however, that um, uh, Infinity, uh, which is another tabletop game, uh, also skirmish scale, um, does exactly this. It has um, your lists are have a number of points and a number of special weapons points, um, and uh, units cost X points and X special weapons cost if they happen to have a machine gun or a rocket launcher or some esoteric plasma cannon. Um, so this has been thought of by other people, um, just not yet investigated in the Games Workshop space. And certainly Chain of Command, which I was discussing before, that is you know, literally what you were saying there, Tom, that it's, you know, you get support points based on your, you know, your team, the mission you're playing, and also uh, your opponent's forces. So if you take an elite team, you you know that the opponent is going to have a lot of support points because you're bringing, you know, more stuff to the table. And, um, you know, if you don't fancy dealing with an enemy armour, maybe you don't want to bring a powerful team you you bring you know a small force instead and then you know your opponent probably isn't about to get any tanks on the table um and that is you know purely done through like you say your, your army list is fixed and then your you know your support side of things is this sort of flexible pool like you say and some of that is unit upgrades you know uh, it's it's world war Two, so it's it, the unit upgrades are a ditch you can stand in and not get shot so much but you know, it, 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 is a, and it is an improvement for the unit. I'm wondering, you know, and maybe JD has a sort of feeling on this too, because what we've talked about here is a lot of upgrades, whereas Age of Sigma is far less upgrade-driven because your units are fairly fixed composition-wise. Yeah, I mean, it's the key difference, I think, between 40k and AOS, really, is that 40k being sci-fi is much more granular and much more about loadouts, right? Whereas Age of Sigma is... You know, for taking the new Stormcaster for, as an example, here is your unit of Vindictors. They are guys with shields and spears. Here is, you know, you, you pay for them five at a time, and that's it. Um, and here is your unit of Vanquishers. They are guys with two-handed swords. You take them in fives, and that's it. There's no sort of, oh, this guy can get a fancy special sword for five points more. Do you know what I mean? There's none of that, really. Um and I think one of my biggest bugbears about list building in 40k, especially using points, is when you are, you, you know, you've got your points cost and it, you get like a rogue one point or something. You you, you do your list and you and you get to 2,000 points and it's, oh no, it's 2,001 points. Mm. 
which then means you know you've then got to just take something out so you are now at 1996 points and yeah. I don't know it's just it's, it's the sort of thing that bugs me but then equally I can see that power level you know doesn't take into account equipment at all so you know you've then got a squad of you know say a squad of veteran guardsmen all armed with you know with four plasma guns cost the same as a squad of veteran guardsmen with one plasma gun which is also strange like i don't know i think there's there's room for it to be improved but also i suspect that um the well both communities but the 40k community particularly i suspect there'd be a lot of um you know if, if they if they introduce like a drastic change i suspect there'd be a lot of shouting and anger over why they've changed my game you know why have they screwed me in particular over <laughs> you know so i don't know I, I don't really see an easy solution to it i think kill team is potentially I, I i could rave about kill team for hours but i think that kill team is perhaps the most intelligent list building system they've done so far for exactly the reason that you've got your fire team and this is what it consists of you can have these guys and that is your team you don't pay for them they just you just have them and then you get say five equipment points that you can spend on these things and the highest equipment cost i've seen so far is three points and it's yeah i just i I just think it's very intelligently done and i think yeah i don't mind points in aos i mean second edition uh i'm not sure if it's changing third edition but in second edition open play um was based on wounds rather than points so if you had more wounds than your opponent, your opponent would get a can't remember what it was called, but they'd get some buff. Um, and then if you had double the, the wounds of your opponent, they would get a sudden death objective, which was if they scored it. So say for example, it'd be sever the head or something, where if they kill your general, they win immediately. Like mm-hmm. and yeah, just the things that that was that felt very good. I mean, I, I played a couple of games of open play, and it yeah, it felt quite uh, intuitive. But I don't know. I don't think there's really an easy solution to the points versus power level and all that sort of stuff because I think it'd take a lot of work to uh, hack it in, I suppose, because it's got so much, you know, AOS less so, but 40k definitely has, what, 30 years of baggage in in the way it's been designed. There is a lot of momentum behind the current rule sets for 40, 40k in particular. Um, and I think, as was mentioned earlier in this, earlier in, earlier in this podcast, there was... It's quite nice seeing um, them start to really think about: Is this pulling its weight? And I'll freely admit, I think the points do well enough for um, what they need to do. Um, so it's probably not high on the list of things to change drastically. But it's always as a, as a sort of thought exercise: What else could there be? Is always quite interesting, isn't it? Well. You you keep mentioning Kill Team, JD, and I feel like it's starting to become cruel stopping you from <laughs> uh, fully elaborating on it. So not to sort of beat around the bush anymore. Uh, you wanted to talk about introducing people to the hobby, but uh, through the lens of Kill Team, I think, isn't it? Yeah, so recently, I say recently, a couple of months ago, um, a friend of mine from university was asking about Warhammer. Um, and the, I mean, the caveat is that this is somebody who is already into you know, video games, board games, card games, that sort of stuff. Um, so the, I think the buy-in was already there. It's not like I just found a random person and said, by the way, you should get into Warhammer. Um, but with that in mind, um, I think initially the first thing to mention is like, 
trying to convince somebody that it's worth the cost is a big undertaking sometimes. Because, you know, I, I do roll my eyes at the joke that apparently seems to always come out of the, oh, I bought, I bought some space moons and I had to remortgage my house. You know, that sort of thing. I th- you know, I do always roll my eyes when that comes up. Mm-hmm. But um, there is an upfront cost associated with getting into this hobby. Um, you know, you do have to buy paints and glue and, you know, a couple of models, but you don't have to buy a 2,000-point army in one go. And in fact, I would argue that that's quite a daft way of getting into the hobby. Yeah, they should be using power level, obviously. Well, exactly, yeah. <laughs> um, but, like, you know, not, there's no wrong way of doing it, but in my opinion, I, I, I wouldn't ever advise somebody to just go and buy an entire army in one go. So, um, initially, the, the plan was to use um, Age of Sigmar's new Path to Glory system uh, as, like, a slow grow and a sort of way of slowly getting in and, you know, introducing rules and, get, you know, building up an army slowly. So, um, with that in mind... Um, my friend, she started collecting some Skaven, uh, and I used. I'm going to be using my new Dominion Stormcast, uh, and we're going to sort of slowly grow up from there. But we went to go and buy paints, um, and uh, she ended up walking out with a copy of Kill Team Octarius, which is sort of. Uh, I was quite proud that that sort of. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the the sort of the thing that happens to all of us inveterate hedonists. That is quite the upsell there. <laughs> Um, going yeah, from pot I mean, of paint to kill Team Octarius. <laughs> the thing is, I didn't have to upsell it at all. Like she saw the Octarius box on a shelf, asked what it was, and then bought it. Um, so we went back and we we assembled, you know, the the Octarius box, and then we played a game of Kill Team. Um, and it turns out skirmish games, particularly Kill Team, are very very good for introducing people to war games because they're quite small scale. They're relatively quick to play. I think we we were both learning the system. Um, but um, I think it took us about two and a half hours to play in total um, which I don't think is bad going I really don't Um, and uh, yeah it turns out that because of the way Kill Team works and the way it's set up and everything there's no messing about really with too much list building like with the Octarius stuff in particular the list building is essentially done for you when you build the models um, because you will make enough models to make a fire team because the, the Octarius kill teams are just one fire team. So yeah, we played that, and it's simple enough. It's, it's complex enough to have you know strategy and you know things to figure out. But I think just purely on its mechanics, it's simple enough that you could just play it with anybody, really. If they had, if they had the buy-in to be able to play a game for that length of time, then yeah, I think you really can introduce people to, to wargaming generally with, with Kill Team and probably Warcry as well, because they're quite similar. Um... But yeah, I mean, it's just I've I found that introducing people to the hobby is is just fantastic. Like you, you get to the secondhand joy, really, of watching someone discover all this cool stuff that you like. And I mean, that's what it boils down to. It's a person I like likes the the thing that I like to do. This is amazing. I've got someone to play with. I've got someone to talk, you know, about all this stuff with. Because um, I don't want to just go off on wild. Warhammer law discussions with people who don't do Warhammer because it's you know probably quite boring to them. <laughs> I think the really key thing as more veteran gamers bringing someone into the hobby is to help the new player, I suppose, navigate the sandbox. Um, there isn't a single way to play or enjoy um, 
40k or age of sigma or any of the games workshop games um i think that for a long time there was the sort of perception that the only way to play was the sort of 2000 points um battle that's what you should aim for um it didn't help that the all the extra games were called specialist games as a thing you get into later on whereas and and that is an absolutely valid and good way to play i will say that up front it's a lot of fun to play large war games there's a lot of pride in having a full army at 2000 points but that might not be what the new player is really drawn to they might they might think actually i want a skirmish game um or i want to play with these tiny planes there's or maybe they just want to do the painting um or converting and there's so many different i I always see both individual games and the um and the hobby as a whole as a as a sandbox or as a toolbox there's you can reach in and go right i want to have this these aspects of it today but new players don't even know what's available it's it's impossible to get an easy view on what there is and as someone bringing someone into the hobby i think you really want to say okay okay here's what i enjoy do you like the sound of that okay yes Uh, we'll give that a go um which bits of that did you enjoy oh well if you enjoyed that bit but not this bit maybe you should try this type of this part of the game and eventually they will learn whether it's whether they want the competitive games they whether they want the narrative games whether they want open play um whether they want to um convert up a really gribbly warband for ink 28 whether they want to um paint a large number of knights for a game of apocalypse there's a huge number of ways to do it but just help them navigate it be the guide and i think yeah that's the kill team example you're out with that sounds like exactly working well and right that's exactly it because there's so much choice like and i, I mean you know for i suppose people like us who've been in the hobby for for a long time um you sort of already know a lot of the, you, you end up picking up a lot of this stuff as you go um and that's that's something I've, I've impressed upon my friend is that you know you're not going to know everything straight away like and you can't learn it all really quickly or anything you can't just sit and read it all and it and you know it everything like it's you know a lot of like we were talking about law like we were talking about like nagash and stuff and um i think she, she was a bit blown away by like the fact that i just remembered all this stuff about who nagash is and all these things and i was like well it's just you just pick it up like over time the more you read stuff the more you read black library stuff and read battle tomes and you know mess about with stuff you you just figure out what you're interested in and what you like and everything um but yeah it's it's, it's good fun to sort of in that honeymoon period of everything's new and exciting so every every time we go into like the friendly local game store that's like near near both of our houses um there's always a new thing that's fascinating you know so like uh, last time we went it was blood bowl Saw the Blood Bowl starter box and was like, "Oh, what's this? Oh, it's it's American football, but Warhammer. Oh, I like this." Um, you know, or looking at the, I think it was the like a, a Bastilladon or something. Oh, this is cool. I like this. You know, it's 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 great. It's it's like I say that that secondhand joy, but yeah, as well, like just being able to sit down and say, "What do you want out of a game? What do you want out of a faction?" So we we established early on that you know both 40k and Age of Sigmar are 
points of interest, but um, part of the reason for Skaven was that um, she has pet rats. So just immediately thought, oh, I must collect the rats. Um, so then I explained to her what the Skaven are, what their lore is, how they play, that sort of stuff. And it, it was basically all ticks. So it was it was one of those things that worked out quite quite nicely. Um, but yeah, it's just fantastic, like um, being able to share, you know, the thing that you like with somebody, and and then be receptive and sort of decide that they they like it as well and want to want to do go further into it. Um, so hopefully, once we've got our path to glory armies uh, mostly done, we'll be able to start playing some Age of Sigma as well. But yeah, I, I do think uh, introducing someone with a skirmish game is absolutely the way to go because it's yeah. quick and easy, um, and there's there's a lot of room to improve. And we've even start, we've started playing Underworlds now as well on occasion, and that's great fun. Do you think that GW is particularly or GW particularly is too monolithic? And obviously, it, it worked for your friends that you went in and you bought. Look for paint, and you ended up coming out with an entire extra game. But do you think that sort of GW does suffer somewhat from being too monolithic in how it presents itself? So there is this sort of like, oh shit, it's this is all the games, or you know, I should be playing one of the big games, and it's harder to see as a skirmish game as a sort of a standalone thing. Do you think that's intimidating to people, or is it just? you know, uh, a fairly open thing and it's going to be case by case. I can see how that would be the case. Um, in this instance, it wasn't. Like, because, um, like I say, the friendly local game store in, in the same, you know, area that they've got all the Kill Team and Blood Bowl and Necromunda stuff, there is also um, Star Wars Legion and X-Wing and, you know, all those sort of things. I think it would be a different story if we'd gone into a Games Workshop store. Certainly. Um... But yeah, I, th- I think the friendly local game store was was the way to go with it because th- now there is that interest in other systems, which might push me to make to play other systems. Like as as I said earlier, I am somebody who is very much in the GW ecosystem to stay. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, maybe I'll get to play you know other games um, as a result of it, basically. But yes, I, I can certainly see how you know. Um, there could be a perception that, oh, well, Kill Team is an offshoot of Warhammer 40,000, so I must collect Warhammer 40,000 as well. Like, I can see that, definitely. Yeah, I, I think it was probably much more of a thing historically, um, which, which feels weird to say about things which have been the case in my lifetime, but I, I'm going to stick with it. Um, but as I alluded to earlier, the picture of a game of Warhammer as a very particular thing you will get your two armies of 2000 points line them up um on the two long edges of the table and fight it out that way but i think for a long time that was the monolithic vision of the hobby and the only one that was represented um and i could, i think that definitely would be quite difficult to get get round and and think yes i okay i'm playing these there's other ways of playing but it's not it's not real warhammer um i think that's been breaking down now i think that there's much more awareness in the hobby community that there are a lot of different ways of playing even your basic game of 40k um or age of sigma even if if you say right now i am only going to play 
base rules Warhammer 40,000. That is the only system I want to play. I don't care about Kill Team. I don't care about Necromunda. I'm only going to play Warhammer 40,000. There's then still a lot of different ways to approach that. There's You can go for, go for Crusade games. You can go for um, an open play game. You can go for... Do you want to go for um, your tournaments? Do you want to go for maybe a um, game based on a narrative scenario rather than um, Crusade? There's, there's all sorts of different things you can do. And there's a much more support for that that you can go to a gaming group or to a friend and say hey let's try this and it goes back to my point about navigating the toolbox it's recognizing that that varies interests vary person to person and the tools you want to get out vary person to person and and that's good everyone will have different things they enjoy my local communities in South Africa have played. We play a bunch of different stuff. Um, I mean, I'm sure there are communities playing all sorts of different games um, wherever you are. Um, but here, it's just a bit more visible, I think, because uh, we don't have um, Games Workshop official stores. Um, and for a long time, it was quite difficult to get Games Workshop models here. It was only stocked by a few places. Um, that has changed more recently. Um, we've got a couple of really good suppliers who can get in like everything. So um, Games Workshop here has exploded in the last sort of like two to three years. Um, it has become much, much more popular. Um, um, and it's interesting because uh, seeing these small these other games um some of them are like huge army scale uh i mean the biggest other army scale game that is not warhammer is um uh war machine i suppose um which has suffered quite a sort of like global um cooling off i think in the last couple of years uh there have been various factors involved in that um similarly i guess legion uh star wars legion has is mm-hmm. Not like maybe the full size of a 40k army, but you're still having sort of like what four, five, six squads of troopers on a board um, and yeah. tanks and things. Um, it, it fills the table up, doesn't it? Think, yeah, there are different. There's I've definitely seen. games at like all these scales, um, and I think that Games Workshop has realized. I mean, Games Workshop obviously as a business has recognized that there are there's a market for smaller scale games because they've started pushing. Warcry and Kill Team, and um, uh, thinking like even their small, yeah, in, uh, Aeronautica Imperialis is like a very small scale. Well, it's almost a board game, really. Um, I mean, and the actual sort of big board games. Um, and the thing is, people do want these different scales of game to play, right? They, they some people just want a quick, easy, like slapping each other. In Kill Team, and some people want the really big game in um, 40k, and some people want the even biggestest game in Apocalypse. Yes, no, definitely. I mean, it, you know, it's not to some malign GW. They obviously do provide quite a lot of sort of different uh, different types of games. Yeah, it, it is just that sort of idea of walking into the GW. And, uh, yeah, JD, you saying there that it was a friendly local game show that you went to. Just this sort of classic GW where it's just two sides of a room lined with one's Age of Sigmar and one's 40k and it's like, them's your game, off you go. Choose choose which side and just work your way down it. Well, before we close out tonight then, what I wanted to do was just uh, 
see whether anyone had sort of a little short tip or lesson they've learned recently to sort of share with the sort of uh, with our listeners just something to make their hobby life better i guess um i'll start off because i had a uh not say a revelation but there's there's axel who contributes to tinyplasticpeople.com is one of our sort of terrain makers he's been talking to a me for a long time about Fomex, which is probably a brand name. I don't know how universal it is across the world, but certainly in the UK, it's quite readily available as a uh, foamed PVC plastic sheeting. And Axel has been talking about this for quite a while. And I finally got some, and it's brilliant. It's so much better than mdf or fiberboard or anything else for basing terrain and models on it just cuts it's it's plastic that cuts really easily with a knife and it comes in decent thicknesses of three mil and it's just lovely lovely stuff um so yeah just a sort of shout out to axel there for for suggesting this to me and then me finally after probably 12 months finally trying it out and and just being totally converted so uh, if you haven't tried Fomex and you are interested in terrain building and things i recommend you get some has anyone else had any either hobby then or you know playing game lesson learned recently something they want to share with folk i don't know if it's a tip so much as just a general like uh i don't know don't know how to describe it. Basically, I've learned that uh, I shouldn't feel guilty about using contrast because uh, it turns out that contrast is brilliant, which I already knew. But I got into that mindset of like, oh, but I'm not painting properly. You know, I'm not doing it properly. And uh, now I've realised that that's bullshit. You can just do what you like, and that's what I'm doing now. So, like, my, currently my death core, the only thing on them that's not contrast is the lead belcher, uh, and they look fine. And I like them, so I'm just going to keep doing that because I find it easier. Properly is an is an awful word, I think. Yeah, I, I hate myself for using it, genuinely. But you know, I've got into, I've now broken that mindset a little bit, and I've just yeah, there's some stuff that contrast doesn't work for, like my stormcast because they're mostly metal. Um, but everything else, yeah, just just slap some contrast on it, and it looks fine. And that's really all I want out of out of uh, out of my hobby: things to look fine. Yeah, as, as a follow-on tip to that, one of the best things about contrast and paints with contrast I found is to paint the base colours with contrast um, and then um, cover the entire model with um, Agrax Earthshade or Seraphin Sepia. Um, really brings it all to, brings all the contrast paints together and helps deal with the sort of annoying little white bits in between them, which um, is a thing to try. And what, what I tend to do is I'll paint with contrast and i'll put a shade on and then i'll dry brush do a light dry brush over the entire model um with one of the dry brush whites and there's a few white dry brush paints and that just all really i mean some of the some of the things on the night are just just that literally that as their paint job and it looks really good um and somewhat related my my hobby tip of the day is that once you've got a thing painted no one can tell um but on my night i have as well as all the Games Workshop bits, there are two bits of Lego and a old bottle cap um, incorporated into this model. And no one can tell where they are. I know where they are, but they. But it's it's a 
proud conversion work that I think people would struggle to work it out. Well, take note, GW store managers for when Tom brings his model in. uh... (laughs) Yeah, but the point is that um, because I was struggling, the bits that they're filling in is things I was struggling to work out how to do. And I was just sort of looking around like, what can I use for this? And just take inspiration from various places and think, oh, actually, I can use this in my model. That that looks useful. But yes, I have now been banned from using using the knight in Warhammer World, I'm sure. Yeah. I was just thinking about things, and like uh, I haven't really thought of anything new that I've been doing, but something which I do uh, quite often just as part of my regular hobbying, and has come up in the past couple of weeks, I've been working with resin models, and therefore using superglue, which, I mean, as everyone knows, superglue works really well, and except when it doesn't. Um, and of, this also comes up often when I'm gluing models to bases, um, because, you know, once if you've got a, any sort of um, interestingly textured base if you're trying to pin or glue a model like on afterwards you're probably using super glue um and i've got a little box of uh baking soda um and baking soda for whatever reason causes the catalyzation of super glue to just start immediately um and it forms instantly just dries it out makes it crusty and hard and you can use it you can use that as a filler if you put the baking soda into a gap first and then put super glue in afterwards. It like sets really hard. Um, this is a trick that's been known by model makers for ages, but I um, sometimes don't see it in um, tabletop. But uh, yeah, baking soda just it's it makes mag- the super glue just go instantly. Yeah, I've I've seen it with prop makers. I hadn't seen it done in uh, in hobby things, although obviously it's a same kind of stuff yeah sometimes you have to load a little bit of paint over it to make it like get rid of the white but you know mm-hmm. yes yeah, so if you want to get your hands stuck together really quickly that's the way to do it oh yeah that too <laughs> <laughs> excellent oh well thanks for sharing these these tips and um hopefully if you want to get some fomex uh super glue something to it really well and then uh Cover it in bottle caps and in contrast. Now you now you know how to do it. So uh, yeah, hopefully people find that useful. Right? Shall we put this pod to bed? Well, as always, we're tiny plastic people. We can be found at tinyplasticpeople.com. There's a lot of articles there, other podcasts, some on specialist things, some general talks like this one. You can contact us at the tiny plastic people at gmail.com if you've got any questions any uh, articles you'd like to pitch to us or indeed just uh, want to get in touch and ask us questions you can also find us on twitter and instagram at tiny plastic pals and for our guest to be joining us tonight jd can people find you anywhere uh, I can be found on Instagram at jd.paints. There's nothing on there at the minute. Well, there is, but nothing new. Maybe there'll be some shiny deathcore on there soon. Tom? You can find me on Instagram as RespectableGeek. And Alistair? Uh, I'm on both Instagram and Twitter as uh, Painting Armory. And you can find me at Drew underscore Paints on Instagram. Excellent. Well, thank you for joining me, everyone. And... Uh, I'd like to wish you all a good night. Cheers. Yep. Bye all. Cheerio. Cheers. <laughs>